0: Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini.
1: Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. Today, I have a real treat for you. We have the pleasure of chatting with a master negotiator, Mr. Chris Voss. Chris, retired after 24 years with the FBI as the lead international kidnapping negotiator. And so Chris has written a fantastic book called Never Split the Difference, best negotiating book I've read in the last 20 years. He's the CEO of the Black Swan Group, a company that specializes in uh, business communication problems, using these very same hostage negotiation solutions. And he's with us here today to share some knowledge on, I believe, the most referable skill in the service industry, and that's negotiation Chris, the top of the morning to you, and thanks for joining
2: us. Brian, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well,
1: it should be a lot of fun. I'm a big fan of negotiation, and I've often thought myself as a good negotiator, but after reading your book, I thought, you know, I've never had to negotiate with somebody's life on the line. You know, mine was real estate transactions where it was whether we were going to get the price we wanted, the terms we wanted, or some of the personal property involved. Before we kind of dive into Never Split the Difference and just some brilliant how-to's, I'd love to know a little of your backstory, where you come from, where you grew up, and how you end up in the FBI?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm just a Midwestern guy. I know my accent doesn't sound like it, but I grew up in a small town in Iowa, Mm -hmm. blue-collar family, and got into law enforcement, and my father encouraged me to look at federal law enforcement. You know, there's a whole alphabet of agencies there. I didn't know one from the other. (laughs) So when I started looking, uh, the FBI was hiring, and I thought, hey, you know, I mean, they're, they're as good as anybody else. Let me try that. It was sort of off to the races after that.
1: So how did you end up in the negotiation side of things?
2: Well, I had a recurring knee injury. I was on a SWAT team. Ah. I was on the FBI SWAT team in Pittsburgh, and then I was in a process of trying out for the, the hostage rescue team, which is the FBI's. Tier 1 counter-terrorist guys, that are equivalent of the Navy SEALs. The SEALs would be mad whenever they hear me say that, but, you know, it's the truth. And I re-injured my name, so I had it reconstructed for the second time, and I thought, you know, there's only so many times I could put this thing back together. So we had negotiators. I figured, how could that be? You know, I talk to people every day.
1: (laughs) But they have exhaustive training, and you went through not only a whole bunch of training, but you kind of real-time got the experience, okay, that training doesn't work in the field this way or, you know, all the different dynamics. You've had to kind of work this out on a stage where the stakes were very high and you were dealing with people's lives.
2: Yeah, well, you know, like anything else, I mean, if you learn a process, you know, you learn a mm-hmm. game plan, you learn a strategy. And then you rely on the process, and then you realize you can't be perfect. You just got to go for the best possible outcome, which by definition means occasionally it's not going to work out.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: As long as you know that you've got a process, you practiced it, nobody's natural born at anything. One of my favorite books these days, The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. Sure, yeah. You know, we read all the time. Learning is the only sustainable competitive advantage for anybody. Mm-hmm. And Coyle points out, I mean, it's his contention, and he backs it up. There is no natural born anything. I mean, the people that we think that suddenly explode on the scene or prodigies, they just got interested before anybody knew it and started putting their 10,000 hours and, and they enjoyed it. They had fun with it. That's also a key to success. It's not become successful and be happy. If you're happy, you become successful faster.
1: You bet. No, that's great stuff. And Daniel's a good friend of our program. He's been on our events and brilliant guy. He looks at life a little differently, doesn't he?
2: Yeah, he does. Curiosity, right? Let me figure this out. Let me do the research and figure it out. Yeah, this stuff's great. Love it.
1: So I'm holding in my hand a hot little copy of Never Split the Difference. I know what writing books are like. It's like giving birth for a man, I think, is the closest thing we can get to. Right. But talk about, just right off the bat, why the whole principle, Never Split the Difference. Why is that so important when it comes to negotiating?
2: There's two really big reasons. Number 1 there's an old saying the person who wants to meet you in the middle is usually a poor judge of distance.
1: <laughs> oh wow that's a good one. Love that. Love that.
2: Yeah so splitting the difference if the other side's offering it it's probably a scam it's probably a con They probably they move the goalposts on you hmm. to get you to feel like it was fair. I mean it's an experimental move. An awful lot of the cultural negotiators do it because it's quick, easy, simple, and works. Mm -hmm. You know, people sucker for it on a regular basis. That's the first problem. probably a con. Second problem is, let's say the other person's not a con artist and neither are you. Unfortunately, the way we're wired as human beings, we can never split the difference and feel okay about it. Mm. And the reason for that is, Danny Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for something called Prospect Theory, and Prospect Theory says a loss things twice as much as an equivalent gain. What does that right. mean? It means if I give up five dollars, I'm gonna feel like I gave up ten. Mm-hmm. Which now means, since I feel like I got the short end of the stick, I got to get you back for an equal amount that I felt like I lost. And then it becomes a death spiral because if I hit you for 10, you're going to want to get me back by 20. And it just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. So you can never have a great relationship. You can't have a great relationship splitting the difference. You just can't.
1: Mm. Well, and in your line of work, splitting the difference was I'm holding four hostages and I'm threatening to kill them all. And you managed to get two. That's kind of a devastating loss, right? I mean, <laughs> right? And most of us don't really face that. But the ultimate dynamic is, you know, as you've gone through this, you've learned the mastery of going through all the different processes. You're obviously i I'm always learning guy, and that's probably as helps as much as anything. And how much would you say understanding people is the key to negotiation?
2: Yeah, it's an ongoing process, and it becomes the, the critical issue. I mean, you can never stop learning about understanding people. You know, people, smarts, emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. again as long as you keep realizing that you got to keep getting better at it there's always another insight you know it's a cliche to say but somebody says dude i know people (laughs) they're telling you they stop learning
3: yeah yeah
2: which means by definition they're stagnating Mm
1: -hmm. in your situation like we'll get to some of your best practices and so on and so forth here's my question that comes to my mind What makes for a lousy negotiator? What just makes for, uh, here's a bad negotiator. (laughs) Here's like the the hallmarks of what the character traits or the patterns of a bad negotiator.
2: Yeah, somebody who who thinks negotiation is making an argument. Mm. And there are a lot of them, Mm -hmm. and they're the B-grade players. Mm. And the good news is so many people think that that you don't have to get that much better to make a real big difference. Mm. I mean, if you get out of argument-based negotiations, your success sneaks up on you. There was a young man that was um, a White House fellow, got detailed to the FBI when I was still doing kidnappings. Smart kid. He ends up, he's a lawyer, he ends up going to practice in law down in his home, Southern State, I think South Carolina. But what am I driving at? He saw me negotiate just in this nice way with really bad guys. So he turned around and he took that approach as a practicing lawyer because he took it easy and wasn't demanding and argumentative. He actually was so much more profitable. He made partner in his law firm after four years and nobody else had ever done it in less than six Mm -hmm. because he settled more deals a little bit faster and his overall, at the end of the years, profit margins were really high, higher than anybody that wanted to argue and get the last dime out of every deal, which mm-hmm. seems really counterintuitive. But what he ended up telling me was, since he didn't argue all the time, when he did argue, the other side knew he had a good case, mm-hmm. and they trusted him. His trust factor was through the roof. So he wouldn't fight over pennies, and he'd end up with dollars.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Don't fight over pennies, you end up with dollars. I like that one. What would be, uh, for you as a negotiator, looking back on your career, what would be the one negotiation that sticks out in your mind where you were you were at your best and you got the best outcome?
2: Wow. Al-Qaeda was murdering people in the 2004 timeframe, the same way ISIS was in 2012. Uh-huh. And we realized that they were doing it, they were really using it as a recruitment model in the Middle East. Hmm. So... What we did was we changed how the Middle Eastern press was reporting on the murders. And we just got them to start referring to Al-Qaeda as criminals instead of terrorists. Mm. And as soon as we did that, we changed the whole dynamic because they didn't want to be called criminals by the media. They wanted to be called terrorists Mm -hmm. because, you know, a terrorist strikes terror in your heart. A criminal? Hell, there are criminals everywhere. They don't impress you. You're like, all right, we got criminals. It's no big deal. And as soon as the Middle Eastern press consistently started calling them criminals, they actually, the number two guy in Al-Qaeda put out an edict to stop murdering people publicly because the publicity was counter to what they were trying to accomplish. Wow.
1: Brilliant. Brilliant. It's understanding what the other side's need is, what the emotional need is. You're trying to figure out what the emotional need of a terrorist is that's killing people right? Yeah. And that is, they want to be heroes, they want to be valued, they want to spread their message, and by being a terrorist, they get to be a hero. By being a criminal, they get to be a bad guy that's vilified, and they didn't want any more of that.
2: And they're nothing special. So, yeah, you Mm. you hit the nail on the head, and that idea applies to everything. You know, it sounds stupid, but what's emotional need on the other side? Mm -hmm. I mean... If I can satisfy the other side's emotional need and not have it cost me any dollars, I'm hanging on to my dollars. Sure. Well, I had a situation
1: myself the other day where we're downsizing ourselves, and I was in a negotiation. It's a pretty tight real estate market out here in California, and there were three other offers on this house. And uh, I'm just, you know, I'm not a big fan of overpaying for a house just because there's a whole bunch of people wanting to buy it. There was a ton of fruit trees on this property. In fact, way too many. Like there was a loquat tree and wherever the seed dropped, another tree popped up, right? (laughs) So it wasn't exactly the most manicured piece of real estate. But I'm in negotiations with these other people. And in my negotiation through the realtor, I write and I said, one thing I want was like a demand I made is I wanted a list of the number and all the types of fruit trees that were on the property. Well, this guy loves his fruit trees. So he gives me this list of the 27 fruit trees on the property, yada, yada, yada. Now, his inference is he thinks I'm into that. Right. So he would be disappointed today to go and find that there's none of those fruit trees currently in existence on the home that I purchased because they're all gone. Because the roots were all out of control. They were growing into everything they don't belong in. Oh, God. But I said, hey, I really want to know how many fruit trees you have and what are the types of fruit trees you have. And based on that, this guy goes, hey, this guy values what I have. He values my property for the thing I like the most about it, which is this out-of-control garden. You follow?
2: Well, you were just interested, too. All you had to do was be interested.
1: Yep, yep. He accepts our offer over the other three because I'm interested in something he's interested in, right? So it's a practical thing. Let me ask you this as we talk about two things. One of the challenges in the real estate world – and Our audience is pretty broad, but we have a lot of folks from the real estate business in our space. Very difficult to negotiate with someone when I don't get to do the face-to-face negotiation. I'm representing, let's say, a buyer. I don't get to often see the seller anymore. It has to go through another negotiating party who's another realtor, and many times that other realtor, let's just say, hasn't read Chris Voss's book. That would be the nicest way I could describe it. So I have to negotiate for my client through another party that might not be very good, who may well or not very well represent their client. How would you go about a situation like that where you're trying to negotiate on behalf of your client, but you don't know who's controlling the other side?
2: First of all, the counterintuitive thing, most people want to get to know the other side. Yeah. And the real problem is they don't get to know you. Mm -hmm. So you take a little bit different approach, and it, it pays off really quick. And everybody feels like when you're trying to get to know me, because if you know my name's Chris in the first five minutes, you're going to use my name on me ten times. You're going to mm-hmm. beat me about the head. <laughs> you know, but instead, if, if you just a little bit like, hey, you know, it's just Brian. You know. First name, it's exactly the same way we kept hostages alive. Mm. You know, get the other side to start slowly using our name. You're going to start with a point of contact on the other side. Make sure they get to know you, just your first name. They get comfortable with you. Then the other thing, and it's interesting you're talking about California because I'm seeing a lot of people do this out here, and I'm surprised everybody doesn't do it. You know, with the first offer, sending a letter mm-hmm. describing the buyers. First name, you know, what are their hopes and dreams for the home?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, what, what are their vision? You know, we want to raise our kids in your home. We want to see our kids grow up. We want to host weddings in the backyard, you know, whatever it is then that becomes game-changing because then the other side gets to know you. And they, they don't feel you trying at them, uh-huh. trying to get their secrets. And so they don't; their guard doesn't come up, uh-huh. and slowly they get to know you and who you are. And That can be enough of an inch.
1: Well, to validate that, just went through this this year with my son, my wife and a new baby, and they're looking around for a house. And sure enough, the house they find is perfect for a, a fix-up-and-turn-and-sell. And so there's a bunch of investment people who are throwing money at these folks. They've been in the house since 1954. We write a letter, and I go, hey, this is their first home, and this is why they want to be here. They want to be part of the community, and that, 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 da And he took a lower offer. The seller took a lower yeah. offer. It was his mom's house. Mom had passed away. There was three brothers involved. But they took a lower offer because they wanted somebody to own the house as opposed to someone who was going to come in and just make a buck and turn it. They wanted a good price for it, and they got a good price for it but they took a lower price because there was a connection, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's that emotional thing we were talking about before. The sellers then get to reflect back for the rest of their lives on a contribution they made to the community by selling to your son.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I was just thinking, the thought came to me, you must be a nightmare to sell a car to. (laughs) How does that work? Tell me, come on, just describe. Everybody struggles with buying a car. How do you go about buying a car? You must be the worst.
2: I got to tell you, it's one of my favorite stories from the book. Yeah, you know because the first brand new SUV I ever bought—I tell the story in the book—it says Toyota 4Runner, and it was the sexiest red color you ever saw in your life. It's salsa red pearl. <laughs> you know, and I go, go in and just do the opposite because you know what's the other side's arguments? You hey man, you love this. It's a beautiful truck. It's worth everything. So I went in to talk to these guys, and I hit him with a really low offer. But then I said, look, man, your truck is worth everything of what you're asking for. You know, it's a beautiful truck. I love it. I can't find it. Everything this guy would have hit me with, mm-hmm. I just set it for him. And then I hit him with the, the how am I supposed to do that question, you know, <laughs> the late-night FM DJ voice. <laughs>
1: how am i supposed to pay that
2: is that what the yeah yeah Yeah, man and when you articulate their arguments it leaves them speechless Mm. i mean they kind of they look at you and they blink you know he looked at me blinked about four times (laughs) he went in the back and he got a lower price and he came back out again and i went oh my god you're so generous i mean that was so nice He says. It was worth what you were asking for before. Now you're going to offer me even less? I mean, I'm in love with it. I just went back and I laid out his whole case again. And I said, how am I supposed to do that? And, you know, he gives me about four or five more blanks. Doesn't say a word. Runs back in the back and goes and gets another lower offer. And I got him going back and forth until he comes down to my number.
3: Right.
1: Yeah. How am I supposed to do that? Open-ended questions and stating their argument for them. And doing it in a way that you're not trying to win an argument it's not an ego boost right it's not i'm about to thump you and you know it i have six kids so i'm always buying cars you know that kind of a deal and i often see in dealerships like people like getting red-faced and you know either getting worked up you know and it becomes this macho type thing or people who just shy away from it and don't make an offer or they just go along with it and every time they drive that car they feel like they know they paid too much for this car and it takes away right, the joy right. of owning it, right?
2: Yeah, and, you know, you don't got to be combative to be a great negotiator. Like, you know, my two favorite negotiators, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, neither one of these people are combative. Mm-hmm. You know, and if they're not good negotiators, that you know, nobody gives you a billion dollars. You got to go out and negotiate <laughs> it for yourself.
1: Yeah, right. So you have a few things, if, just on a technique-wise you use the mirror back technique. You talk about the word fair. Can we get into some of your favorite techniques you outline in the book on how to work through a negotiation so that it is the type of solution you're looking for?
2: Yeah, I got to tell you something. In that mirror one, I mean, that is so easy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it takes no great depth of understanding to mirror is just repeating the last three words of what somebody just said. It's not adopting their body language. It's not adopting a tonal voice. It's not doing any of the body language stuff that most people have learned mirrors. A hostage negotiator's marriage is just repeating the last one to three words of what somebody just said. And it just gets people talking. And the other thing that's important about getting somebody talking, too, is you need them to expand. You need them to paraphrase themselves. Mm -hmm. And if you say, what do you mean by that? What people have a tendency to do is repeat what they just said word for word, as if the word's, Mm -hmm. You know, they got the words on a stone tablet. They walked down on a mountain.
1: Or sometimes with more emotion, right? Because, oh, you didn't hear me. I'm going to thump you with it even further.
2: Yeah, I got to do it loud. But there's something about a mirror that causes people to reword what they just said Mm -hmm. and to go on and expand. We got a lot of star performers. The only thing they do is mirror. And I had one guy tell me, he said, look, I mirror their proposal every single time And how they expand is going to immediately tell me whether it's a soft or firm position. Mm -hmm. And now I just gathered tons of information. Mm -hmm. Their guard is not up. You got to keep the other side's guard down. You're not doing any good making them feel attacked. Mm -hmm. Their guard is down. They're going to start saying things they wouldn't otherwise say. We ran into a guy at a weekend conference once, spent the entire weekend doing nothing but mirroring people. And nobody knows, because the other thing about a mirror is, you know, the other side's going to talk for five to 15 minutes in between your mirrors. Mm. So they're not going to see that you did it. You know, you could mirror somebody four times in a row. You've got a 45-minute conversation. They talk the whole time. So the mirroring is a great skill. So
1: will you say, in your mirror technique, will you say, so what I'm hearing you say is, and repeat it exactly?
2: Well, that's a combination of sort of paraphrasing, and that comes close to what we call a label.
1: So now the goal is then pause be quiet and let that person fill in the blanks.
2: Yeah. And the thing that you talked to about before, it's kind of a verbal observation type of technique. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of use for that. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about the mirror is again, just instead of making a verbal observation where you're trying to do a confirmation, you're doing a paraphrase, you're trying to confirm that you're hearing. The other great thing about a mirror, it's a great habit to build three days. You can build your mirror habit. It's real really? simple. And once it becomes a reflex, when you get caught off guard and the other side says something that you just cannot compute, like you have no idea what to say, Mm. you're going to be able to mirror the last three words of what they just said. And there are no shortage of times in an interaction. The other side says something and you want to think to yourself, what are you thinking about? Or what are you trying to get done right now? Because what you just said makes no sense. It's actually one of the great defensive skills out there. Because the other side says, you know, you guys have been attacking us for years. And you want to think to yourself, you know, what the heck are you talking about? Attacking you for years. And then you just say, attacking you for years? mm And that's when they start to talk. Mm. Or you need the other side to hear themselves out loud. hmm And you need them to start talking out loud where they didn't even notice. They went from thinking the thoughts to expressing the thoughts. Mm-hmm. It happens an awful lot of time when, when what they're saying makes no sense. But it makes sense in their head. Mm-hmm. Now, as soon as they say it out loud, they hear themselves and they go like, oh, yeah. Ah, OK. You know, they hear themselves.
1: What I mean is.
2: Yeah. Or one of the negotiations in a book, this woman is working in this company where a manager has been, you know, they've been providing reports to other people for 20 years. Manager's been doing this for 20 years. And this was about 10 years ago, so people were, digital copies of everything was a relatively new thing. A lot of people still wanted paper copies. And they had a report that was probably 5,000 pages. And her manager wanted two copies of the report, and not digital, which is going to go on a desk, and they were going to send them to the desk, and they put it in a mail. But if the manual copies, they got to ship it in boxes. And the guy says, you know, I I realize that so much is being done digitally today, but I really like hard copies. And she just goes, hard copies? He says, yeah, you know, I, I like hard copies. I like the feel of hard copies. But I realize it's a little bit of a storage problem, but I still like it despite the storage problem. And she says, despite the storage problem? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you know, yeah, as a matter of fact, Send them the digital copy, but keep a hard copy for us, and I'll find a place to put it. And she goes, "Find a place to put it." And he goes, "Yeah, you're right. There's not that much room in my office." She says, "I tell you what, just you know, digital copy for the client, digital copy for me, we're, we're good."
1: Brilliant, brilliant. I can think of all the husband and wives listening to the podcast right now are going to start using this with each other, which might not be a bad thing, by the way. It might actually give people a chance to listen to one another.
2: I got to tell you, there was uh, one woman in Silicon Valley, senior executive, her husband, then fiance, now husband, is going through our training. She didn't know he's going through a training. And, you know, we don't do practice exercises, pretend exercises. We have you use your stuff in your world. Mm-hmm. So he starts mirroring. her one day. We say, today's a mirror day. Go mirror the significant other. so about three quarters of the way through the day, she goes, I really like talking to you today. What's going on?
1: (laughs) And he goes, what's going (laughs) on? Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) No, but he finally ends up messing up to her that he's being told to do the skills with a significant other. She goes out and buys copies of the book for all of her girlfriends, husbands, and Mm -hmm. boyfriends. Yeah. So they can talk better together.
1: Yeah. No, it's interesting. You know, I had an experience a few years ago. I had just spoken in seven countries in nine days. And you know when you're on the road, right, you're just traveling, traveling, traveling. Come back from Europe, I get in, I'm all mucked up on the time frame. And my wife had missed the day I was coming home. So she had thought I was coming home the next day. So I come home, and she has this little group over, and it's a bunch of, of gals, and they're sitting there. And I can walk in, and I got the bags. I've been traveling for 24 hours. I don't know what time zone I am. I don't know where I'm at. Right. And the next day, I'm walking into this group of people who are very interested in talking to me. And I right. have no desire to talk to anybody else. So there's these two gals who traveled across the country, and I asked them three questions during the course of the night and never said another word. <laughs> and my wife got a letter from both ladies independently. said, your husband's the most interesting man I've ever met. It <laughs> was out of sheer desperation where I asked open-ended questions that gave them a chance to talk about themselves, ask another open-ended question, and they thought that was the most interesting conversation they'd ever had. And I think that's true for most people. I think most people themselves is their favorite subject, and if you give them a chance to talk a little bit and get going a little bit, they will, right?
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting, too, because um, there's a saying, interested people are interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, which is, if you give it some thought, that flies in the face of common ground, because normally common ground means you got to talk about yourself a whole bunch. Mm. You know, where'd you go to school? Uh You know, what's your ethnicity? Where'd you grow up? You search for common ground. As soon as you find any overlap, then you go on at length about yourself, Uh which you're not interested in them. Uh So interested you're ridiculously interesting to other people as soon as you're interested, which excludes common ground entirely. Right. These women, other than that, you were coincidentally in your house, and which means geographically, but you never gave any common ground on that at all. You were just interested in them, and they found you, you know, you were the most interesting man in the world. You could be doing Dos Equis commercials, right? <laughs> yeah, right,
1: yeah. And I am genuinely interested, and I do believe that is something that, You mentioned it several times. You mentioned in your book just this dynamic of curiosity. And we're becoming, you know, with technology and everything at our fingertips and everything on the phone, oh, Google this, opinions everywhere, we're becoming less curious. And I think as we become less curious, we become less engaging and worse negotiators too. Talk a little bit about curiosity and how you've used that in some of the most intense situations and the most unbelievable negotiations you've had to face.
2: Yeah, well, curiosity does a lot for you. First of all, curiosity is a positive frame of mind. Your brain actually works faster and more effectively in a positive frame of mind. There's a pretty good source out there, a Harvard psychologist, Sean Acker, says you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Mm -hmm. So curiosity immediately is your mental capacity increases because it's highly positive. You see patterns more quickly. You focus and you listen more. You're interested, and you can take in more information. Now, the other thing about that, too, is your demeanor, then, now, you're much more like a bull. Now, there's a difference between being like a bull and needing to be liked. Mm. If I need you to like me, you can take me hostage, and I've got no control over that. But I have complete control over whether or not I'm likable which then is going to resonate with your emotional system, your neural system, your limbic system, it's going to incline you towards me, which then in reality gives me even more influence. So now I'm smarter, now I'm taking more information, now I have more influence, and I can see it develop and evolve, and therefore I can use my powers for good or evil at this point in time.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And hopefully the motivation is good. I mean, it's powerful stuff. And that's why ultimately, you know, you are mentioning Sean Aker, and here's a guy that does books on happiness. And what's an FBI negotiator reading books on that? What I hear is you are a personal growth and development guy. You're an ongoing grower. You're pursuing. Yeah. And in that, you're able to develop it into a sharpness in your expertise. And it's interesting how many yeah. people in common we've shared here today because ultimately success leaves clues and what i find yeah. is the successful people are all doing the same things and a lot of times reading the same books and having the same conversations because we're all on the same path on trying to find a way to get better and be better and be of more value
2: yeah absolutely i mean it's two things at the same time it's fun and it is the only sustainable competitive advantage
1: yeah that's a great quote last technique thing i want to ask you about is this word fair the f word Talk about fair. Yeah, it's a fantastic place to get to a negotiation. Why is it so important?
2: Yeah, i got to tell you something. There isn't a single negotiation. The F-word doesn't come up. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to be treated fair. You will walk away from a deal that would make you better off if you feel like you weren't treated fairly. Mm -hmm. I mean, flat out, turn around a deal you should make. And people, business people blow up deals all the time. You know, it's not fair. Or you drop the F-bomb. And the effect it has on people. Mm-hmm. If somebody on your team can talk your whole team out of a deal by just telling you what they're giving us isn't fair, this isn't fair. Could be a great deal. Mm-hmm. You got to watch how it's being dropped on, and then when the other side drops it on you, I got to tell you something. I've given you a fair offer. Mm-hmm. That is a manipulative thing. I just want what's fair. Mm-hmm. You know. Now, if you're not wise to it, I've knocked you off balance in a way that's going to it's a really good chance that you're going to give in on something that you shouldn't give in on. If I say, look, man, we just want what's fair because it causes such self doubt Mm. and everybody wants to be fair and wants to be treated fair. Of course. So if you're not aware of it, I can tell you something. I haven't seen a deal yet where the F bomb has not been dropped somewhere along the line by somebody using it proactively Mm -hmm. to knock you off balance or people using it defensively. And it's the most common word, and if you don't think business negotiations are emotional, I challenge you to find one where the F-bomb wasn't dropped. so yeah, right.
1: How do you, now again, it's topic-specific, negotiation-specific, but when you find somebody's trying to manipulate you with the F-bomb, how do you respond to
2: that? First of all, almost all negotiations, either manipulation or influence, depends upon how it's being used. Right. So I'm going to put it in context. You know, are they saying it inadvertently by accident? Well, that means I missed something here emotionally. Maybe they don't feel heard out. If somebody is really hitting me with it defensively, what they're really telling me is they don't feel heard out. And so if I hear them out, the chances that I'm going to make this deal are really good. Mm. Now, if it's somebody trying to cut my throat, there's two issues here. Could I make this deal? And every deal is a relationship to some length of time. So do I want this relationship? Now we've walked away from deals that we could have made because we didn't want the relationship. Mm. It's an interesting dilemma. My son's my director of operations. He handles all the negotiations for my company. Mm. He hates not making a deal. <laughs> and we recently walked away from a deal because the other side were just screw ups. They couldn't do anything right.
3: Mm.
2: There are people we really liked. It was a tough negotiation. And. My son says, look, you know, we can make this deal. And I said, yeah. And then how's the other side going to implement? Because they can't do anything right. And they're going to get bought out. And when somebody else buys them out, then the people that we like, are going to be gone. And now we're going to be married to people we don't like. So what's this look like long term? So I always ask myself, what's this going to look like long term? Mm. You know, we want to be married. How long do we want to be married for? Right. And we may not make the deal no matter how lucrative it is. Right. Because getting married to them is going to make it blood money.
1: Sure, that's when you get down to the negotiation with yourself, isn't it? You know, yeah, you have to be aligned with yourself. And we could go on about this topic forever because this is something that is a great passion of mine. I think it's crucial in business. I think you know, you mentioned influence versus manipulation. I think that's character and skill is the influence side. And that's the side I want to stay on. I don't want to manipulate yeah. people. I don't want to be a manipulator. And I'm sure as heck not interested in being manipulated. Yeah. Before we came on the air here today, you were talking about a newsletter you guys bring out every Tuesday called The Edge. Tell us a little bit about that and how our folks can tie into that, if you would, for a second.
2: Yeah, man. The Edge is the gateway to everything the Black Swan Group has to offer. Mm-hmm. The gateway to our website, their training announcements on it. We put out a lot of free content. Great. We're either free or we're expensive. So we try <laughs> to free stuff first. But it's fair. <laughs> yeah, but we're fair. We treat everybody fair.
1: <laughs> That's great. So go check that out, guys. I highly recommend it.
2: Text to sign up. You're texting to the number 22828. And again, that number is 22828. Send a message, FBI Empathy, all one word. Your spell check's going to try to put a space in there. Don't let it do that. FBI Empathy, all one word, to 22828. You'll get a response back looking for your email. You're off to the races.
1: It's fantastic. I love the work you're doing with the Black Swan. I love the content. I love the Thanks. fact that you've been there, done that. This is not theory. This is not role play just done on college campuses, You know, even though I know you've done that. But I think when you go on the college campus tours, you're bringing a, a shotgun to a knife fight because you've been there, done that. And all of a sudden, you know, you've had to do it when it really counted. And so I also want to thank you for your service in 24 years of serving our country and saving an awful lot of people's lives and helping to build processes that we can save a lot of people's lives. And so you've done great work for your country, for your community and your family, and uh, helped a lot of folks like myself out along the way. Thank you. Here's a few rapid-fire questions for Chris Voss. All right. We're going to find out a little bit about you
2: we're in final jeopardy now. yeah right, right
1: Yeah, ready. here we go what's the one best piece of advice you've ever gotten be a little nicer nice who
2: gave you that you know i can't remember i think it was upper level manager in new york in my new york days i like being in new york i like being in a hard edge place and yeah. i like being pretty direct and blunt and he said you know well, you can still take the same position just be a little nice
1: nice that's great great advice all right, what one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't?
2: Wow. You know, I wish I was better at being completely in the moment. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm actually working on that a lot. You know, as adults, we start thinking about how does this play out? How have I viewed this in the past? All those thoughts take you out of the moment.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you actually miss a lot of the moment. Mm-hmm. And if I could obtain the superpower of complete and total focus to the moment. mm I think I would really get a lot out of it.
3: right?
1: That. Focusing on the past and getting obsessed about the future, we miss the precious present, right? Brilliant. Yeah. That's great. All right, what book has been most instrumental in your life? If you were to give one book, or something you're reading right now.
2: Wow, there's a lot of stuff I'm looking at right now. Probably The Rise of Superman of the books that I've read in the last five years has had some of the biggest impact on Because it's about flow and performance. It turned me on to a lot of other books. Mm -hmm. Author Stephen Kotler. I've become acquainted with Stephen. He's a cool dude. And one of the more interesting cats on the planet. And reading his stuff has led me to other stuff. So The Rise of Superman.
1: All right. Beautiful. You probably don't get to watch a ton of TV. But if you're scrolling through the channels, there's just one movie you've watched over and over again. What would be that one movie that catches you every time?
2: Yeah, it would probably be Pulp Fiction.
1: Really? <laughs> that's great. That's great. Classic. That is a classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Last but not least, what's one thing that's still on your bucket list?
2: Uh, Everest.
1: Okay. All right. Good stuff. Make sure you get the right guide. That's the key there, right? Great yeah, stuff. Yeah, don't go
2: in there are 500 people in a conga line trying to get to the top. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. A couple of us issues with that lately. First of all, it's been great meeting you today. Right, thanks. Brian. It's great to put the voice to the name. I love your work. I love this book, Never Split the Difference. I think we have an awful lot of people who are in the service industries, mainly real estate, listening to this. And I just think it's the most referable skill for anybody in the service industry. I know when I asked my customers what I thought they valued, and like, I had all these services and all these cool things I did, I had an assistant that was a registered daycare person. We had a daycare facility in our real estate office for our clients, all of these great services. But when I asked my best customers, when you refer me, what do you say? They'd always say, you're a good negotiator. You'd handle the negotiation. And I didn't realize at the time, it's the most referable skill for someone in the service industry. And what it is, it is, it allows you to be that trusted advisor that takes the difficult thing that most people avoid and make it something that... Not only did it make them feel good and gave them less anxiety and let them enjoy the process, but that was the most descriptive thing they could tell their friends about. And you've done it in a profound way when it really made the difference. So Never Split the Difference, I think, is a, is a must-read for anyone listening to this. And then I hope everyone will get a copy and get involved with The Edge and enjoy the free stuff. And I have no doubt with the customers we have, a lot of the folks will enjoy the expensive stuff too. So we appreciate the time today, appreciate your gift, and thanks for spending some time with us on the Prime Buffini show today.
2: Thanks, Brian. It was awesome. Thank you very much.
1: All right, bud. And before we finish here... Uh, Chris mentioned the word fair here and how to use it and how not to use it, how to make it work for you and how to make sure it doesn't work against you. And for many of you know, we've launched our most successful uh, training program ever this year called the Pathway to Mastery, and we have a negotiation section in that course, including a whole list of words to use in negotiation and business that we call winning words that include the proper use of the word fair, and we're going to give it away to all of our Buffini insiders. So those of you who are on the insiders, you'll be getting that. And those of you who want to be on the insiders, listen in for a minute here. Mr. David Lally will share with you how to be on the insiders. And uh, I think it's just a really fair thing to do.
0: Thanks, Brian. And thanks again to Chris for joining us today. Insiders, to download your winning words giveaway, head over to the brianbuffinishow.com slash insiders. If you're not yet a Buffini Insider, you can join there as well and get this and other great bonus content. We hope these strategic words help you in all of life's negotiations. Before we go, I wanted to read a note from listener Justin Zachariasen from Battleground, Washington. Dear Mr. Buffini, I recently began listening to your podcast. It's brought me joy, encouragement, wisdom, and motivation. Thanks for your dedication and sharing your life story as an inspiration to us all trying to make it in this world. Well, thanks, Justin. We appreciate the feedback. It's always awesome to hear from our great listeners. And as we sign off today, I'll leave you, as per usual, with an Irish blessing from Brian's mum, Therese. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.